Waves in the Finiverse. You know, we're still seeing a lot of great founders building novel companies, um, and there's still a lot to build in the crypto space. I guess startups never feel perfect. Um, what a truly bad investment looks like, from my perspective, is when you have sort of the same meeting every month and nothing changes, and they don't try anything else, and it's just kind of Groundhog Day of, oh, gee, we don't know, nobody wants to use it. Imagine you can travel back in time and invest in startups before they even have a product ready. Would you be able to pick the Coinbase from the baseless, the Rippling from the Dippling? That today is the job of our guest. Now managing partner for Initialized Capital, he is a self-taught coder, philosopher, pizza maker, and pinball master before turning his hands to investments. Brett Gibson, managing partner of Initialized, welcome to Finiverse. Not too many months into your leadership, we saw the implosion of FTX, and uh, that no doubt led to some challenges in seed stage investments. Uh, how have your portfolio companies been responding in, in today's market? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we didn't have as much, you know, direct, uh, also the portfolio companies, we didn't see much direct um, exposure to FTX. But it was certainly a moment for people that invest in, in, in crypto assets to sort of st to step back and think about, you know, what why we're all here and you know, why we can't keep ending up at this place with with fraud. Um, and what is it about this technology? Is it just the fact that it's that it's novel um, and there's exciting things going on and that sort of naturally attracts fraudsters? Or is there something sort of more fundamental about Know, digital bearer assets where uh, their ease of being used in crime. Um, so, you know, ultimately it, it was as sad as it was and the, and the number of people got hurt. I think that, you know, I'm personally and as a, and as a firm, we still believe very strongly in the asset class, believe very strongly that, you know, monetary assets, you know, uh, it just makes too much sense for them to be digitized on some timeline. And then I would say in terms of, um, so, so, you know, with the portfolio, it's just, I think it, we've been here before with crypto winners. And so it's, it's similar advice as before, you know, have runway, if it's possible, paths profitability if you need it. But, you know, just, you know, to be able to be able to last the, the downturn. And then with, with our investing, you know, it's it's actually, you know, seed, seed investment is, seems the, the least hit by, you know, anything coming out of FTX or macro conditions. So, you know, we're still seeing a lot of great, great founders building novel companies. Um, and there's still a lot to build in the crypto space. I mean, I think... I think FTX is, is um, you know, about, sort of proves that in a sense, right? There's a, there's a lot more systems we need to replace and build out to really have a crypto ecosystem that everyone can have faith in. Now, Brett, you're investing much broader than uh, digital assets. Uh, you've got everything from enterprise software as a service to sustainability. What are some of the sectors that you're particularly um, interested in? The today? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, personally, I think that the through line um, to the things I look at is, is that uh, I, I'll kind of always be a developer. I spent most of my career before investing, writing software or managing small uh, engineering teams. And so I, you know, I, I tend to look at things where, where it helps to have that background and come from that context. So, um, you know, developer tooling, cloud infrastructure. And I think that right now, it's, it's really hard uh, from that lens to be ignoring what's going on. In, in AI and machine learning and deep learning and sort of 
I know along with a lot of people trying to figure out what um, generative AI models and sort of like large language models are going to mean, you know, not just for society broadly, because it seems like there's pretty wide implications, but also for you know, the startup ecosystem and, and the startups we invest in. You mentioned you started as a developer and uh, Gary Tan, the founder of Initialized, once said about you, and I quote, in his code, you sort of see the philosophy major in him. He definitely has this sort of obsession with the platonic idea of perfection. There's something very elegant about that. If that's true, have you been uh, seeing perfection in the startups you're working with? You know, it's 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 funny because it's like, it, you know, start, I, I guess startups never feel perfect, right? I think that that is one of the, one of the most interesting things about the startup journey is, is how much of a roller coaster ride it is. You know, as a founder, even when things are going well, um, you know, there's always some crazy thing happening that you have to track down. And so I think that, you know, I guess what what I see, you know, I wouldn't call it perfection, but what, what I what I see is like particularly rewarding is, you know, founders that sort of roll with that and, and have like, you know, that are very mission oriented or very detail oriented and have perseverance through, you know, all the things that, that the world can throw at, at an early stage startup. You know, that's, I don't know, that's that's actually you know, perhaps the part of the job that I find gets me out of bed most in the morning. Yeah, it's got to be part VC investor, but also part um, coach and, uh, you know, umpire and um, putting uh, band-aids on dirty knees sometimes. It's got to be a messy business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess, you know, Paul Graham once compared early stage startups to mosquitoes, right? There's just no defense. It's just out there to <laughs> score, right? There are plenty of reasonable uh, ways to build a business, but when you're in, when you're in the business of just a high growth technology startup, you know you're not you are exposed in many ways as you try to get to market and as you try to grow very fast. Um, and there are natural forces that are that are trying to stop you. Most you know most often kind of larger companies that 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 you may be stealing market share from. So it's a lot to hold together as a startup founder, and I'm. Yeah, so we try to be extremely empathetic about that. Have you ever had a you had me at hello investment proposition, a company that you were enamored with uh, right upon meeting them? Yeah, I mean, I would say perhaps that's that happens more often for us than otherwise. When you're doing like a late stage growth venture round, you know, you're getting closer and closer to kind of the, the kind of the motion you might do to underwrite a company that's in a public market, right? Where you're looking at financials and digging through and crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. Whereas for very early stage, you know, there's as much risk of talking yourself out of things as there is in not doing enough diligence. And so, yeah, we, we pride ourselves in being able to very, move very quickly. And I think we have a lot of deals where you try to be very prepared for what comes in the door and then and, and recognize it when you see it. One that comes to mind is a company we invest in called Bison Trails which did, um, you know, infrastructure as a service for creating, you know, validation nodes on proof of state networks. They, they ended up selling the Coinbase. You know, I wasn't really sure what I thought at the time of even proof of stake or what was sticking around. You know, this is kind of like, it's like 2018 before, you know, it had been proven out that many of these networks would work. But they came in and, and the founders were so impressive and they had such mastery of both the technology, but like sort of like, how the market would would develop that that you know within an hour I was kind of like you know certainly there's more work to do it's more work to re research to be done here but you know it was it was immediately clear I needed to take 
take the company the rest of the partnership. Okay, Brent, and on, on the dark side of the coin, uh, likewise, you've probably made some uh, plays or investments in early seed companies that um, maybe weren't as successful. What are some of the signs that the investment's going bad or that the startup may not make it to late stage? We invest before product market fit. So we often see things that just kind of never turn that corner. And it's uh, unlike... Growing a business that already has product market fit, it's a less deterministic process. So you you see founders who who work really hard and you know they keep tweaking and, and you never kind of know if they're one tweak away from you know finding that inflection point. But you know I think that that you know that never you know those are never as disappointing. Those are the kind of people that you know were that are really in the trenches, working hard, and we're excited and engaged. Uh, we're excited about even if the outcome isn't exactly what we want. Um, what a truly bad investment looks like from my perspective is when you have sort of the same meeting every month and nothing changes and they don't try anything else. And it's just kind of this kind of groundhog day of, well, gee, we don't know. Nobody wants to use it sort of thing. OK, so it's the uh, momentum, energy and movement seem to be vital ingredients. I think those are crucial, especially early on, because you it, it, you know, it, it's a little bit more art than science and being creative and reacting to the market, talking to enough customers, figuring out what is going on structurally in this market that, that you that you can figure out how to get a, um, a toehold on into it and, and figure out what people want and, and not just what they want to use from, say, a software perspective, but you know, how they are going to react to it from a go-to-market perspective. Initialized Capital is known for its early-stage investment in Coinbase, which uh, went public through IPO. How did that come about, and uh, how did you manage to find the one exchange that's uh, still standing? You know, the first couple funds for Initialized were, were more like angel funds while Gary worked at White Combinator, and I think that that was... You know that that was that was where the Coinbase investment came from, and you know I think it was kind of a kind of a similar example with Bison Trails, where you know Gary didn't wasn't really didn't have as strong a thesis about about Bitcoin, but he understood um, what a good founder you know executing very quickly looked like, and you know when you when, every time he talked to Brian, you know something new and amazing had happened with the company, and you know they they were having problems like running out of Bitcoin to sell. Um, which which seems like a, a very good sign for an early stage startup. So I do think it is actually perhaps a more interesting question what they've um, you know how they've had staying power. I, I believe it's back to sort of FTX slightly, right? There's you know the, I think that the the institutions that look good uh, are either the ones that were entirely decentralized, so there's like DeFi, or things that were actually entirely under a regulatory profile. And I think that that Coinbase. Has you know the United States government has not made it easy to do a, a regulated crypto change, but no. they have decided that they were going to power through and figure out how to do it anyway. And I think that 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 is kind of the the fruit that has paid off now, right? They took the very hard way of being a, a regulated consumer facing exchange in the U.S. Um, and the decisions they made along the way have sort of compounded to to where they where they sit in the market now. Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Speaking to the people making waves in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3, and beyond. Shifting now to AI and the headlines worldwide around generative AI, how is that influencing your views on potential investments today? It's a great question. I think that, you know, along with a lot of people, I'm sort of try, still trying to figure out where 
and how startups are going to you know leverage this. It seems what's interesting about AI to me is that for the first time, it's you know normally when you have something new and cutting edge and um, and innovative on this level, you know there's some sense that perhaps the larger companies in the space might you know not pay attention soon enough. And and AI is so seems so obvious. Like when you see generative AI, it, how it works and how magic it is, it seems so obvious it's going to be integrated in so many places that there's a lot less of this like innovators dilemma and a startup sort of building something that should have been obvious to the big company from before. You know, and secondarily, you know, at least to date, like AI has has incremental cost to, to run the inference, right? It costs you know costs some amount every time you get a response from ChatGPT. And so, you know, we also have this thing where historically you've kind of ignored marginal costs of running software businesses. It's not really relevant. Um, and that may change if everything we do that's, you know, that involves software has also got some sort of AI component. So, you know, I guess those are a couple of threads of it I've been thinking about lately. I don't claim to have sort of solved how to, how to approach AI investing, but, you know, it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Aside from your philosophy degree, you also had a career in pizza production. So <laughs> what's the base of a good startup? And then what are the sprinklings and sauces that go on top? Yeah, I mean, we're, so we're strong believers that like, you know, you need the, the found, founders sort of you start with the founders um, and they need to um, they need, you know, smartest kind of table stakes. But, you know, d- determined and thorough and sort of meticulous are and, and highly effective, right? You know, just like the getting things done part of it is is very big. Um, and then from there, I mean, obviously, you know, I think that generally, you know, if, you, if you're looking for high growth, probably need more capital so, because you need a team around you. When, when we think about the motion from, you know, from like from seed to series A and figuring out product market fit, one is this heavy product component. You need people who really can build product, both understand the product and the engineering side. And then once you have something you're able to ship, you know, you have to be thinking very hard about the go to market motion um, and how to get people to actually care. You know, even if you solve their problems, they don't know it until you tell them. Um, and so thinking about sort of market segment and where you fit in and how to get in front of the right audience are, are a big deal. Brett, how do you get the pace right? Because if you go too slow, then you're at risk of obsolescence. If you go too fast, you're at risk of burnout. How do you pace the the rhythm of your companies as they're going from seed to series A? Yeah, that's a great question. I, and I think that it, it is very easy, you know, you, especially with the, you know, the types of founders we want to back, they end up a little obsessive and a little pushing too hard. And so you, we do end up talking to them about, you know, it is a marathon, right? Like, and, and they need to set up a culture that is sustainable through through all the stages that that they need to achieve because you know there's there's a next milestone that's very important but then there's a lot there's a lot of company behind that i think it does tend to be the case that the seed stage companies are probably uh the burning a little too hot from a founder output perspective and and that they you know sort of settle in as they build executive teams around themselves through through later rounds but you know i think that it's just a lot of conversations a lot of coaching around you know what's the reality of what you can achieve and you know what what sort of makes sense for you and um, what makes sense for the culture of your company. Brett, we mentioned generative AI. What other technologies or sectors are of uh, greatest interest at the moment as you look ahead into the 
rest of 2023, which areas? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, tend, we tend to be generally pretty generous and sort of have someone on the team is, who's interested in most things. I think that climate is obviously like a, a big theme. Kim and I and our team has been spending a lot of time there. You know, there's still there's still a lot of room to go and sort of the core of, you know, software in a lot of parts of the world. I mean, we still see sort of new processes that that are antiquated in a way that, that a software company can come in and disrupt. I'm still excited and engaged about what's happening in crypto. I think it's a good time to be building, a good time to be starting. Um, and especially, I think, on the, you know, the one thing I do say is even if even if all, everything in crypto were to work out, like the advancements in cryptography itself, you know, will remain. And I think that it's going to be really meaningful for privacy and security technology over, over the next few years. You mentioned climate and climate tech. Introduce that field to me uh, and some of the players. It is pretty expansive. And I think that that is actually, you know, is born out of the, how, the scope of the climate problems sort of facing the globe today. We're looking at things all the way from hard tech, you know, where they're getting carbon out of the, out of the atmosphere somewhere or, or like orchestration for novel you know, solar, you know, and re- renewable energy sources. Um, and also, you know, this sort of economic based approaches where you're doing a lot of tracking and carbon offsets. And that seems to be touching more and more companies. And so there's kind of just like SaaS based software that's needed to, to keep everyone on the same page and, and to track how things like carbon credits move through the economy. Brent, where do you focus your investments geographically? I, I know you're based in San Francisco. So obviously North America, the U.S. is a large market for you. But where are some of the other geographies that uh, attract your investments. Yeah, I mean, I think that our our, pri- our primary mandate is North America and, and most of the and most, most of the companies we do invest in uh, have a, you know, North America's big part of their go-to-market. We originally, you know, it was at least ambiguous if if not forbidden that we would be buying, you know, liquid tokens directly and, and so we amended our, our agreements with our LPs in, in 2018 to be able to purchase those. And part, as part of that, we also sort of removed that requirement for companies in the, in the crypto industry, just because it, it, you know, it seems a bit like, uh, you know, sort of both anecdotally, but there's kind of some reasons you could explain that, it, you know, this is sort of extra governmental money. And so it is a much more global industry. It seems to pervade even the way a lot of crypto companies organize themselves, right? A lot of them are more likely to be remote first. And there's a lot of more traction out of the Southern United States. And also, if you just think about people who have problems with money, you know, the, the US dollar is, is a relatively easy thing to use get relative to a lot of fiat currencies around the world. So it, we kind of, it's going to make sense that, you know, just decentralized assets are, are, are going to be more global in nature. Well, that's great news for digital assets. And I've heard the advances in cryptography. Uh, what about the NFT craze? We're seeing massive drop-offs in trades year on year. How do you think NFT technology will evolve into other applications and solutions? Yeah, I actually, you know, I'm actually very bullish on NFTs. I think that, you know, basically, like, if you buy off on this um, basic concept of sort of this uh, censorship resistant, you know, you know, uh, zero counterparty risk assets, um, there's no reason to stop at the fungible. It makes a little sense that they are money like. uh, and, And so you would focus on the money like things. But you know, as soon as you can enforce digital scarcity, enforce digital ownership, you know, most assets or most things people own are not 
fungible. So it would make sense to me just kind of intuitively that there's a wide range of things that are non-fungible. I definitely buy into the concept that the 2021 sort of NFT craze is sort of analogous to the ICO craze, right? The, the, the NFTs themselves may, may not be as relevant, but the mechanism is quite relevant. And I think I think we're seeing that to some degree even now. You know, we're investors in Manifold Creator. Um, they, you know, they are kind of the, the largest platform for NFT issuance on, on Ethereum. And what you've seen is a is is a migration from just you know from high value. You know, so there's high value NFTs to to more low value NFTs. I think both on the trading and the origination side. And I think that that is kind of how we're headed towards. And I think I do think that, you know, there's certainly I think there's a lot of applications like we haven't for explored or I haven't really thought of that are probably going to pop up. Certainly think, you know, the basics like NFT gating or memberships or passes like all makes sense. But also, you know, uh, one way one of the founders of Manifold explained it to me that I thought was really interesting is like, if you think about um, what in-app purchases sort of enabled for, for apps on mobile platforms, now, now anyone can do those in a permissionless way. Just as anyone who creates or influences or engages with an audience online, they now have this sort of universal individual digital asset uh, thing that, that is very analogous to kind of like how an app purchase gets sold in mobile apps. Well, I'm looking forward to, as a communicator, looking at blockchain for engagement and community building and, you know, really just uh, creating a, a greater sense of community amongst the audiences that you work with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I understand you're not a fan of the term Web3. Why not? <laughs> What's wrong? Well, I yeah, I don't know. I guess, I mean, the first thing was kind of like, you know, I was around when Web 2 was Web 2. And it, it's funny because it was kind of, I feel like the, that it's been sort of revised in, in hindsight. A lot of the things that sort of describe the progression uh, don't seem to resonate with what, what people were calling Web 2 at the time. Because, you know, the, the original episode was more about the functional um, you know, the functional separation of sort of page loading and HTML from, you know, being able to get data from a backend and sort of what they're calling Ajax and stuff and not really necessarily about community. That was just the kind of application that was enabled. Um, I guess I felt that, you know, I felt that Web3 was a little bit of a euphemism, you know, like I was kind of like, I will not embarrassed to be a crypto investor. And so why did we need, we need to make up a new word uh, to, to hide behind? Um, and yeah. And so, I, you know, I think that that, that, that was kind of the base of my reaction and, and some, and some concern that, that, you know, sort of an intentionally architected buzzword. If people want to call it Web3, I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's not a hill I'm down. No, but it sounds like a fake label over a, not necessarily a designer label. Yeah. Tracks in the we end our show with a segment we call Tracks in the Finiverse, and clearly we ask guests to tell us the music that would power them along on their journey in the Finiverse, and was wondering what music comes to mind as you think about your voyage. That is a very interesting question. I mean, I guess I, guess I just kind of think about what my favorite music, I don't know how to contextualize it actually on my, how it informs my walk through the Finiverse, but I, I'm a big fan of the song You by Kendrick Lamar. Oh, fantastic. Anything special about that? That song that uh, gets it onto tracks in the Finiverse? It's just, I mean, I feel like, he, you know, he kind of tells it from different angles. There's some, like some of the verses inside the song have contrasting perspectives. So that's kind of part of the journey is sort of understanding others and, and where we all fit in. Love you is complicated. 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 
Loving you is complicated. Loving you is complicated. Loving you is complicated. Loving you is complicated. Loving you is complicated. Place blame when you steal, place when you steal. Feel like you ain't, feel like you don't feel confidence in yourself. Breaking on marble floors, watching anonymous strangers telling me that I'm yours. But you and I'm confidential, tolerance, nothing special. What can I blame you for? I can name several. Situation I start with your little sister baking. A baby inside, just a teenager. Where your patience? What was your antennas? What was the influence you speak of? Fantastic. Well, Brett, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us here at Finiverse. We really appreciate your time and insights. Thank you for having me. This is great. It's a lot of fun. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.